Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Macy Rowe. This is The Doc Project. And this is Bob. I'm Bob Kerr. Comedian, writer, uh prolific voice in uh, small town Canada. Okay, try one more. I'm Bob Kerr, entertainer, writer, all-around person. The reason Bob is struggling to introduce himself for this story is because it's not the kind of story he usually tells. Bob is a professionally funny guy. You may recognize him from This Hour Has 22 Minutes, where he was also a writer for years. It's pretty commonly accepted that the best comedy comes from a dark place, that comedians plunge the depths of their misery to make other people laugh. And that's more or less what Bob set out to do with the story you're about to hear. Tell a complicated, difficult story about himself in his usual funny way. But it took a turn. Bob's story stopped being about Bob and became about the things he never knew, understood, or asked the people closest to him. I'll let Bob start at the beginning. Here's Bob Kerr. Here's a fun fact about me. I didn't start walking until I was two. And I remember taking you to the doctor because I thought something was wrong because even when I picked you up, you never, most kids kind of help help you pick them up. You never did. You were like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> that voice is my mom, Lorraine. So I thought something was wrong with you. So I took you to the doctor, and the doctor did a bunch of tests, and then he just came back to me, and he goes, there's nothing wrong with your son. He's just lazy. <laughs> yeah. And that's, like, kind of like the cornerstone of the rest of my life. Like John had walked before you did. John is my brother. He's a year younger than me. This pretty much sums up the dynamic between John and me growing up. He was athletic, hardworking, and fearless. I was slow, avoidant of most work, and afraid of everything. To put it simply, my brother was a go-getter. I was a go-sitter. As a youngster, I was uh, pretty competitive. This is John. I'm Bob Kerr's younger brother. Not as good looking. <laughs> I'd say I was probably a perfectionist. I, uh... Always strive to do uh, well in school. I think I, I, I think I received a lot of A's, and there's times where I didn't receive A's, and I'd spend uh, two hours or more after school trying to convince them that I deserved an A. My brother was also a social butterfly. I was comfortable in my cocoon. You would go up in your bedroom, and after you ate, mm -hmm. and that would be the last time I see you for the night. <laughs> I was a lonely kid. My room was my haven. I would spend hours up there reading, writing, watching TV, and snacking. The loneliness and the eating, they were intertwined. 
I was a real chubby kid, and I was picked on at school because of it. In high school, I went from a chubby kid to a fat teen. The first two years saw me being bullied in a way that grade school never prepared me for. It was like a whole other level of mean. But I discovered one thing that kept me safe. Getting people to laugh at me. I started using my weight for jokes, imitating Chris Farley's Saturday Night Live character who lived in a van down by the river. And I live in a van down by the river. Soon I was no longer the butt of everyone's jokes. I was beating them to the punchline. I had suddenly found my place. I was the funny guy. But as far as mom was concerned, this strategy backfired when I got a role in the high school production of South Pacific. I was cast as Luther Billis, the comic relief sailor. I jumped around in a coconut bra and grass skirt, my gut exposed, with a sailboat drawn on it. I did a belly dance and the audience collapsed into gales of laughter. I'm not going to lie, I loved it. But there was another voice somewhere deep inside me that said, they're not laughing with you. I think you got kind of upset with South Pacific. Well, because you had to wear the coconut bra and the grass skirt. And I think some guys, some people were making fun of you. I think that's, that was your turning point right there because I think that really bothered you. Did I say anything? No. You never talked too much about your feelings. No. No. What makes you think that? Well, because that's when you started not eating. My mom remembers the South Pacific incident perfectly. But she's got her timeline wrong. That wasn't when I stopped eating. That didn't happen until the following year when I went to college in Sarnia, Ontario. I had a really big crush on this girl in college. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it made me ill in my stomach. It made me sick to my stomach. So I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat. And then I started losing weight. You got sick to your stomach because uh, you had a crush on this girl? Yep. I know it's extreme, but it's true. The crush was severe. I was lovesick and I couldn't eat food. I couldn't even look at it. This went on for weeks. I would get so anxious whenever I saw her that the nauseous feeling just grew and grew. One day, a friend of mine looked at me in class and said, Hey, you lost some weight. I replied, Oh, really? Yeah, you look good. I was awestruck. In my 19 years on this planet, I had never been told that I looked good. Never. This innocent compliment from nowhere sparked something in me. I hadn't even intended to lose weight. I wasn't dieting or anything. I was just not eating and it made me think if I kept losing weight I might have a shot with the girl I was lovesick over so I kept not eating but now it was a conscious decision the compliment also gave me the courage to finally ask the crush out a few weeks after I took her on a date to one of Vin Diesel's first movies pitch black. The movie was terrible. Neither of us enjoyed ourselves. And then, while I was driving her home, I told her that I liked her. 
Her response was underwhelming, to say the least. I'm pretty sure she said, thanks. So yeah, that was that. But in the next few months, everything started coming together for me. After graduating, I moved to Toronto to take the comedy program at Humber College. And it was a game changer. There I was, living on my own in a big city for the first time, surrounded by like-minded people. My entire world grew exponentially, and I felt like I had finally found myself. But while my life was taking off, my weight was plummeting. When did you notice I would start losing, that I started losing weight? Because you came home, and uh, you asked me to cut your hair. So I said, told you, okay, take your shirt off. And I just about fainted. Because I could see every bone in your body. Right. And I remember going in and saying to your father, get out here and look at him. Right. I was scared for you. By the time summer vacation came and I moved back home with my parents, I was obsessed. I would lift my shirt at the mirror and inspect my side profile. I checked the scale about five times a day. If the number was even a fraction higher than it was the last time, I'd feel twinges of panic. And something new started to happen. Whenever I used shampoo in the shower, my hands would be covered in my hair. That's when I started contacting people. Who did you contact? I phoned, uh, there was this uh, thing for, um, that you can call, like it's a, like a, a helpline mm-hmm. for kid, like for parents with kids. And I wanted to, I wanted to know what was going on with you. And I told them that you were losing weight. And I told them that you were losing your hair now. And uh, they said something should be done now because it wouldn't be too long and your organs would start shutting down. This was 2002. So there was no Google for my mom to turn to. The helpline was the best she could get. So yeah, we were afraid of losing you. What were you we had to do about? something. We have to do something now. My parents decided to call the police. We told them that you were not eating and you were anorexic. And I told them that I already talked to my doctor. And he, he agreed that we, even though you were 18, we could step in and... and uh, take you out of school and put you in the hospital. But I wanted to get police information about that at the time. And they said yes. Yeah, they would make sure that you come out with us. So sort of like a forced intervention. Yes. Calling the police on your anorexic child may seem like a weird move, but they were watching their son waste away. And the thing is, this wasn't their first time. Remember John? The athletic perfectionist walking before me, brother? Younger brother. Not as good looking. He'd had his own weird food thing, too. Way before my anorexia took its hold on me. AC here. Coming up, Bob discovers that he and John have a lot more in common than he thought. 
Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. For John, it all started with a visit to our grandparents' place when we were really young, around four or five years old. I think the one time I went to Kitchener, and I think I drank through wa- the water in Kitchener, and I, I uh, ended up having basically the scoots, or diarrhea, I should say. That, that terrified me. We don't know if it was the water that gave John diarrhea, but what happened at my grandparents' place planted a fear in him. It stayed somewhere deep inside him for years. Then in grade six, the fear came back. That anything you ate might be unclean? Anything that I thought would give me the scoots is, uh, is what my biggest fear was. So the whole, the whole food thing was, was I knew that if I, if I didn't eat, that I wouldn't, have to go to, uh, I wouldn't have to go to the bathroom and I wouldn't get the runs or, that, or I wouldn't get diarrhea or nothing. So that's, I just basically stopped eating. Right. At meals, John would often leave most of his food untouched. And then he started to obsess about any food he did eat and getting it out of him. Uh, and you're okay to talk about this? Sure. The height of it, the worst part of it was you would be in the bathroom for the rest of the night. If we had dinner, you'd be in the bathroom until it was bedtime, basically. And then in the morning, I think I'd wake up at like early, early, six in the morning, and I'd be on the toilet right till, right till before I went to school. It was devastating. Even if I didn't have to go, I'd try force, forcing myself to go. And then the anxiety of, of going to school, I wanted to make sure that everything was out of my system before I went to school. Because you're afraid of getting diarrhea during school? Correct. My mom tried doctors, a pediatrician. John was diagnosed as anorexic. But it didn't seem to fit the whole story. At this time... John was a skinny grade sixer playing minor peewee baseball. I was an overweight grade seven kid, idly losing himself to David Letterman and Saturday Night Live. I don't remember any of this, except that I suspected John was going to the bathroom to try to get out of doing the dishes. I definitely never asked him about it. But my mother was beside herself. No one could tell her why John was sitting in the bathroom for hours or why he wasn't eating. It all caved in one night because I would sit on the toilet, so he couldn't sit on the toilet. And uh, so we did that back and forth. So then he took off down to the ball diamond, and I, I got a call from them asking me to come and get my son. But in the meantime, I had found a note that he was going to kill himself. Oh, I for sure was suicidal. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to spend eight hours a day on the toilet. I think to themselves, why am I living? Yeah. There's a lot of times I sat sat on the tracks, waiting. And so you would sit on the tracks waiting for a train to come and hit you or run you over. Correct. Yeah, I don't think I ever really 
grasped how suicidal you were as a kid, but I don't know why. So here's what happened. John had gone to the Ball Diamond to use the bathroom there because Mom was blocking him from using it at home. After he wouldn't come out of the bathroom, the clubhouse called Mom to come get him. That's when she called a child specialist she had taken John to earlier. Then he said to me, well, you pack a suitcase tonight for him because he's not coming home with you. And he says, I will have you meet the head of psychiatry at, the, at London Sick Kids. And he was admitted. And then... And how was he reacting this whole time? Well, I remember when we got to the sixth floor, he wanted to know where the bathroom was <laughs> right away. And he went in there, and they had to get him out of there. So what did they say this was? What did they call it? Uh, at that time, they were, ta- they were saying it was OCD. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. John was put on a drug called clomipramine, and it helped. There were some side effects. He was irritable and angry, sometimes violent. But he started eating. He stopped sitting on the toilet. The big turning point, I think, was they brought a patient in that was that had OCD. Yeah. So I talked to this guy for about an hour, and that was the turning point. Because when, when you go through stuff like this, you think there's no possible cure. You'll never be back to normal. Yeah. That's, you're, you're, you're done. So after hearing this, someone with a success story, that was my uh, turning point. The OCD treatment worked for John. But a decade later, it wasn't OCD that came from me. I had anorexia. Full blown. It was 2001, and there were no triumphant tales of men surviving anorexia. From what I remember, there were no stories at all of guys with anorexia. And because of that, I was able to naively convince myself that I wasn't anorexic, and that my parents were just overreacting. However, like my brother, I did have a turning point. It happened at my Aunt Julie's birthday party. We had all sat down for a buffet-style dinner in a rental hall. I had put enough food on my plate to appease my parents. Did I I eat everything? No. You took three bites and took off to the bathroom. So then I said, your dad came back, and I told your dad, I said, "Go go to the bathroom. Something's going on with Bob. And he was going to go. Then John came. And so your dad sent John. I went to the bathroom because I had to pee. But given the history of my brother in the bathroom, I can understand why she had the reaction she did. The odd thing about it, however, was that my father chose to send John in to check on me. John, who had spent so much time in the bathroom as a kid, obsessing about the food he ate. And now here John was, coming to the bathroom to check in on my eating disorder. She asked me to go follow and, and to, go, uh, to go, uh, go in there and just act normal, just to, and just to see what, what you're doing. And when you seen me, I remember this, you just said, uh, Mom's sitting in here to check on me. I said, yeah. I hated that my mom didn't trust me. But to also have someone come check on me felt like I was a toddler. Like I had to be watched and taken care of. 
Then you came back to the, the table that we all were sitting at, and you started yelling at me. And people around were looking at us. And I said, this is your aunt's birthday party, and you won't yell at me here. If you, if you want to talk to me, we will go outside and talk. And that's when I told you about us taking you out mm-hmm. of school. And then you, the only thing you said to me is, you can't do that because I'll lose my year. And I said, I don't care. At that point, I didn't care about school. All I care is about getting you healthier. As we stood outside in the parking lot, my parents laid it all out. They were close to getting the police to drag me out of school and put me in a hospital. Mom handed me an ultimatum. I gave you the opportunity. I said to you, if you, next time you come home and you've put on weight, we will consider leaving you alone. But if you don't, then you're not going back. You'll be going into the hospital. So we gave you that choice. At this point, the compliments that triggered the anorexia had long since dried up and been replaced with less flattering comments, like I was addicted to heroin or I had a terminal illness. One friend told me that she was confronted by people asking her why she wasn't doing anything. But the thought of being taken out of school and losing a year, that was my turning point. If I didn't start eating, I would lose the new life I had built for myself and the first group of real friends I had ever made. Friends who laughed with me, not at me. I couldn't have that. So I started eating again. And it was excruciating. With every bite, I had to fight against the anxiety of gaining weight. And with every bite... I had to silence the voices in my head telling me that I would never be worthy of anything good. This might sound ridiculous, but it wasn't until I started working on this story that I started thinking about my brother. In fact, this documentary was originally about my anorexia, and that was it. It hadn't occurred to me to link it to my brother's experience until I really started thinking about it. My anorexia, my brother's OCD, how did two siblings who were so different from each other end up going down such a similar path? It made me think of something else, too. What the hell was it with my family and food? How did food become ground zero for all our anxieties? Let's start with my late dad. He was a fan of food. He was a big guy. He ate a lot. And when he was the one serving you, it was like he was giving you your second helping on top of the first one. Yeah, whatever he figured he could eat. If he was filling someone's plate, they got that portion too. (laughs) Yeah. My wife still to this day... She uh, considers that the cur portions. Mom wasn't a big eater like Dad was. When I asked her about that, she starts talking about high school. I would eat one meal a day. Why? I don't know. I just I wasn't hungry in the morning, and I wasn't hungry in the afternoon. So I, uh, I just ate supper. My mother drops this piece of information so casually. She only ate dinner, but that's not normal right okay but that's kind of interesting i mean so when you were only eating one meal 
are you saying it was specifically because you weren't hungry or mm-hmm. there was nothing else behind that? No. You didn't want, it wasn't that you wanted to be thin? No. It was just that you weren't hungry. Yeah, because, how, how could you not be hungry from breakfast and then lunch, especially lunch, you're going to school. I don't know. I'm like that now, though. But lunchtime, everyone's eating lunch. But I'm like that now. I understand, but so what did you do at lunchtime? We ran across the street and smoked. At our family dinners, my father, my brothers, and I would have regular dinner plates filled with food. Mom would often eat from a dessert plate. Since that dark time in John's childhood, he's been able to get his life back. But he doesn't think he'll ever be fully rid of his OCD. There's still times where I'll I'll say that's enough and force myself and get off the toilet. Yeah. So that's that's still with me today. My eating issues are still with me too. It's a small voice, easy to overpower, but it's still there. I suspect it will always be. And while I could try to make some sense of the strange mystery of two polar opposite brothers sharing a similar fate, I can't help but to think that the person who was hit hardest wasn't me or my brother. It was our mom. What are we doing wrong? Like, I figured we were doing something wrong. I had two sons. My two youngest sons were were doing this to themselves. So I figured it had something to do with me. So I'm trying to figure out what I did. It's not what my mom did, or what any of us did. It's about what we didn't do. We didn't talk. You can even hear it throughout the telling of this story. My mother telling me how I didn't like to talk about my feelings. All the times I say, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And right, 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 right. In between my family sentences. Yeah, right. This is actually me processing their feelings while talking out my own for the first time. You never talk too much about your feelings. No. No. And because of that, I had no idea what John was going through. I couldn't help him. And 10 years later, he couldn't help me. We were two brothers who didn't know better than to wrestle our demons on our own, which weakened us both. Growing up, John and I just didn't really connect. We had nothing in common. But that's not the way it was at all. We had a lot in common the whole time that we couldn't see. And maybe now, things will start to change. Well, this uh, this interview, Bob, I'm starting to learn <laughs> stuff about you. There's yeah. a lot of similarities here. Uh, and you're okay to talk about this? Sure. Talking about our feelings may never be a big thing for us Kerr brothers. But we can try. And hey, better late than never, right? Bob Kerr. That doc was written and produced by Bob and Jennifer Warren. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. So Bob gave us some photos to share with you that, at first, we weren't sure about. But he insisted. So, on our website, you can see Bob as Luther Billis from South Pacific in all of his grass-skirted and sailboated glory. You can find that on our website. 
That's cbc.ca slash docproject. There you'll also find photos of Bob and John together with their mom, Lorraine. Also, if you or someone you know is struggling, you will find links to resources. The National Eating Disorders Information Center and the Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention. Please take a moment to rate and review us before you go, or better yet, share us with a friend and make sure they subscribe. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. All the times I say yeah and write in between my family's sentences, I did this so much that my producer actually edited a bunch of those out. I want to do it again. I did this so much that my producer actually edited a bunch of those out. Edited. 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 Actually, edited. edited. Okay. Edited. edited. But just that line. I did this so much that my producer actually edited, edited, <laughs> edited a bunch of those out. That my producer actually edited a bunch of those out. I did this so much that my producer actually edited a bunch of these out. Edited. Right. Edited. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I did this so much that my producer actually took a bunch of those out. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.